Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched JFK. New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison discovers there's more to the Kennedy assassination than the official story. Movie sucks. <laughs> it just sucks. I'm actively angry at this movie. Oh, that is a colossal understatement. David has been whining about this movie for a solid week. It took three separate sits of an hour each to pour through this affront to history and truth-telling. Affront to history and truth-telling. I mean, like, I don't think you're necessarily wrong. It's just so extreme. But it is. Like, that... We are going, this is, this ties in a little bit to our history section, but I'm glad oh, we totally. didn't put this in history because even people who really like this movie mm-hmm. know that it's garbage in terms of the facts. Okay. But what's really enraging about this movie to me is the fact that it started a conversation that can no longer be put back in the box. Mm-hmm. And I would be willing to bet that some of the most extreme conspiracy theories that are thriving right now mm-hmm. helped get their second wind from this movie. That seems reasonable. And that's a problem because those conspiracy theories are resulting in actual violence right now. Oh, sure. And I say this having seen some of Oliver Stone's work and not hating him as a director. Sure. This movie isn't just bad, it's dangerous. Because if you take this movie at face value, It leads you in a whole bunch of horrible directions. And its argument is bullshit. Okay. And then, to top it all off, it has the audacity of being so fucking boring. Oh, yes. Like, I could have, like, gotten over, like, things being historically inaccurate. Because, like, let's be clear, I didn't, like, pay much attention to any of this shit previously. But... The fact that it's so fucking boring, it's just info dump after info dump of no consequence. And it's just like, this is so damn boring. Like, it's just so bad. I want to be clear here because I, the common thing I always heard about this movie from people was like, you know, whether you like it or not, you know, Stone captured the essence of the paranoia of the culture around this assassination. Okay. That was the line I always got. Sure. And he doesn't do that at all. I don't think so, no. And part of the reason why he doesn't do that is because he's wholesale conflating and making shit up. Mm -hmm. If he was sticking to the actual controversial facts of the case and the real deeper conspiracies going on, Mm -hmm. it would be a good movie. There is a movie to be made about all of the weirdness around the assassination, Mm -hmm. which really comes down to a mix of incompetence. And wanting to brush it under the rug, to move on quickly. Which is not unreasonable. Politically, everybody, and especially the LBJ administration, wanted to say, well, now we have the opportunity to do everything we wanted to do, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to war. Yeah. And we can also paint this guy as a martyr. Sure. It's, It's a convenient way to do all of that at the same time. And like the the biggest problem here is that Oliver in his deeper meta narrative has hit on a lot of true shit. Sure. You know, things that he talks about like Operation Mongoose I'm listening to. It's an outstanding podcast called Blowback. Everybody should go listen, but the whole second season is about Cuba. And yes, we fucked around like crazy with Cuba. Mhm. 
and there's all sorts of conflicts in the industrial machine, but he pushes his conclusion that that was the result of JFK, and he gets so wrapped up in his own maniacal paranoia about all of this Mm -hmm. that he misses the real, more interesting story, which is, why was everybody so quick or so incompetent to deal with this in the correct way? Yeah. And what it really comes down to is, it's not that Oliver Stone thought that this was a good story. It's that he actually believes this shit. What we are watching is the rantings of a man who believes all of this conspiracy bullshit. Okay. So much so that in the past year, he made a second documentary documenting a whole bunch of, scare quotes, new evidence that proves more of his bullshit. Interesting. And all of the critics' reviews have been like, this is garbage, it's totally destructive, and it's awful. Yeah, no thank you. <laughs> no thank you, Satan. Again, that, that is the problem with this movie. It's not interested in the controversy at all. No, and I totally understand wanting to go into the conspiracy theories because there are plenty, and that would have been an interesting movie, is that if, if you made it about really the ineptitude and how crazy it got, which only made things more difficult to solve, to mm-hmm. clear up, to fix. Because like this had never happened to us before. This happened on TV for the entire country. Super fucked up. So yeah, it's going to take a minute. And there's going to be lots of theories and whatnot about all those things. And that would have been an interesting movie. But this is not it. And I hate it especially because... This is a man who's given us some really amazing movies, too. Mm-hmm. Oliver Stone is not a bad filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But again, to me, this isn't just a bad movie. This is a flat out, like, nobody should be allowed to watch this movie because it's poison. Yeah. But we're going to talk about it. He's got us talking yet again about it. Yay. <laughs> All right. Boy, there's a lot to go through here. The budget for this movie was $40 million. Okay. So that's roughly 80 or 90 million today. It grossed in the US 70,400,000. Globally, it grossed 205,400,000. Yes, it, it was a massive hit. And I guess I get it. We said this halfway through the movie. We were like, oh my God, this is the most boomer movie I've ever watched in my life. Mm hmm. I equated it to watching the West Wing with all of its ideal ideas of government, which is what that show centered around, but then flipped into an acid trip Yep. in some weird schizophrenic style of like then throwing all of this evil on top of it that just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. There, there was plenty of evil to go around, but not when it came to this assassination. It was yeah. the bumbling of the Dallas Police Department. Mm-hmm. And it was the the quickness of the government to be like, we don't know what to do. We just have to go. We, we've got to deal with this and, and move on. And we don't even know who did this. <laughs> uh, yeah. God I damn mean, it. it's, it's all dumb. But if you want to get even weirder with this, Oliver Stone showed this film to Congress in December 1991. That was like five minutes ago. And that screening led to the 1992 Assassinations Disclosure Act, allowing the public to see documents related to the JFK assassination after 25 years instead of the 70 years originally stated by Congress. That would have been 2029. So under the Trump administration, which they should not be given credit for this, they, just, they were required by law to do so. They released mm-hmm. a giant cache of documents in October 2017 called the JFK Files. 
those files, yet again, revealed nothing new. Yeah. Literally nothing. Scholars who have studied this come back again and go, yeah, everything still points to one shooter. <laughs> you know, you can believe whatever you want, but the preponderance of evidence preponderance has continued to point to Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone. Okay. Nobody can conclusively show anything that would prove beyond a reasonable doubt that anyone but Lee Harvey Oswald was involved. Okay. And so at that point, when it continues to go this long, you start to realize that all of the conspiracy theories are based on misinterpretations of the evidence. Every single one. To the point where finally you have to come to the conclusion of, there's really only one good answer here. <laughs> yeah. And none of us want to believe that because it's such a huge moment in history. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's not the first assassination of a president in American history, but it's the first one with such mystery around it. Well, it's that, but it's the first one that everybody was able to experience. Yes. Because it happened live on television. Well, it didn't happen live on television. But you know but what the, I mean. The, the reporting of it came through so fast because of news media. Well, immediately people were seeing that footage. Well, actually, no. So they didn't see this footage. The Zapruder film, this is something that comes up later. The trial in 1968, mm -hmm. Garrison's trial, is the first time anyone saw the Zapruder film. Oh, okay. It was suppressed by Time Life for obvious reasons. Sure. Okay. I didn't know that. But yeah, it, it was not shown in 1963 live. Hmm. Okay. There, there's so much to get through here. When speaking to the National Press Club, someone asked Stone if the film was meant to insinuate that the government was involved in the MLK and Robert Kennedy assassinations. Stone's answer was yes. Again, this is just a weirdo. One Hollywood weirdo. One weirdo. <laughs> and like, it's so funny to me that he got there. There was then this thing of like he became persona non grata because of all the controversy and the shitstorm he stirred up over this movie. Mm -hmm. But now having seen it, I'm like, I get it. Yeah. Especially everybody who lived through it, who watched every bit of what was coming through the Warren Commission, who literally read that shit word for word. Yeah. And like the media who did it. And don't get me wrong, corporate media lies all the time. But in this case, there wasn't anything to lie about. Fair. <laughs> Look, I take a healthy dose of like, I understand the government's lying to me about some shit and I'm going to be okay with that. I've decided that's fine. Yeah. Like there are some things I don't need to know about, particularly as they are happening. But there's so much bullshit around this that never comes to any actual conclusion, except mm -hmm. that a guy went to the sixth floor of the book depository and shot the president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Despite the massive size of the production, they completed filming in only 72 days. Okay. Which is nuts. That is For a nuts. movie that did all of this shit. Now, to be fair, like half of the movie is a whole bunch of different camera shots and angles of the assassination. Of the same place. So it's Stone grabbing like 80 cameras and filming this one scene with different takes using different cameras. But... It's it's a huge movie and it required a whole bunch of coordination. So I'm I am damn impressed that he got it done in like two and a half months. That's pretty good. Yeah. To give you a sense of some of the some of the back and forth with the media on this movie, Pat Dowell, critic for The Washingtonian, had a 34 word capsule review for January rejected by John Limpert, the editor of the paper. Limpert regarded the film as treacherous and opposed it being released. 
Dowell resigned from the Washingtonian in protest of having her review nixed. Interesting. Ebert praised the film, because he's, he's Roger Ebert, only to receive a strong rebuke from none other than Walter Cronkite. Interesting. And Cronkite said, there is no shred of truth to this film. And he's right. Washington Post national security correspondent George Lardner visited set and based on the first draft screenplay he read, wrote a scathing article against the movie. That led a bunch of other papers to follow suit, taking offense to the numerous liberties Stone took with the facts. And uh, I will discuss all of this in the history section, but let us note that Stone published an annotated version of the screenplay attributing claims to his research. Okay. I have to be clear here. Oliver Stone is not lying about this to tell a story. Okay. He actually believes this shit. That's what makes this movie so off-putting to me. That's crazy. Yeah. So let's talk about our writing. No. <laughs> we have to start with none other than the lead character of this movie, Jim Garrison. Wait, he helped write. The script is partially based on his book, On the Trail of the Assassins. I mean, that makes sense. So he is the main character. It makes sense that like his recollections would be like a big part of it. Yeah, we'll get into him in history. Mm-hmm. Then we have to mention a gentleman by the name of Jim Mars, who wrote a book called Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy. Jim Mars is a ufologist, a conspiracy theorist, and a purveyor of the horribly racist ancient aliens theories. Yeah. Yeah. Also, fun note. He is an alumnus of University of North Texas. That's where we went to college. And we actually went through school with his daughter, who's very nice and lovely. Cool. But yeah. <laughs> Again, if you write anything about ancient aliens, you're on my shit list. Yeah. Because that's some bullshit. That's totally fair. And then we get to our really complicated figure, Oliver Stone. Before this, he wrote Seizure, Midnight Express, The Hand, Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Salvador, Eight Million Ways to Die, Platoon, Wall Street, Talk Radio, Born on the Fourth of July, and The Doors. After this, Heaven and Earth, Natural Born Killers, Nixon, Evita, Any Given Sunday, Alexander, Savages, and Snowden. Hmm. Also working on the screenplay is a guy by the name of Zachary Sklar. He did nothing else of note. Okay. What do we think of the writing of this movie? It's crap. <sighs> it's the crappity is crap, crap, crap. The way he has Garrison speak in quotes constantly is just so frustrating. Sure. It's taking those worst, most eye-rolling parts of like a Sorkin movie mm -hmm. where, you know, he's hitting it way too hard on the head and you're like, oh my God, dude, quit it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it, again, it's the, it's just like the info dump that's constantly happening. Well, but like, that's literally, he took those worst parts and then the, he made an entire movie out of it. He made it worse. I'm like, how do you do that? Mm. Again, this is the man who gave us the line, greed is good. Greed is good. This man has won Academy Awards for writing movies, and deservedly so. What the fuck is he doing here? I, I genuinely don't know. And again, all I can say is just like, he actually believes this shit. This is him preaching some weird assassination gospel. 
Mm-hmm. Like that's all it is. And it just goes on and on and on. Yep. I mean, like there were plenty of moments where I wanted to throw down, but I think the worst one by far is we get in this discussion and the one character who finally has some sort of skepticism speaks his voice. Uh-huh. He gives all of the very legitimate reasons why none of this shit makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then another guy in the room goes, you know, I knew I never really believed him. I never trusted him. And you're like, Jesus Christ, really? Yeah, it's so dumb. Uh, it's so incredibly frustrating. And, and again, because you could tell the story of this guy mm-hmm. and you could run down all these conspiracy theories and then go through why they're shit. Yes. And see him hit those brick walls after brick walls and continue to fight through this and make Garrison the ultimate bad guy that he is, but also being a true believer. And that would be an incredibly interesting movie to watch. Well, you don't even have to make him out to be a bad guy. You just make him out to be like, well, I'm I'm seeking the truth. I'm a truth seeker. And like, yeah, that's bullshit. But <laughs> you could have at least like pretended that he was a good guy in that in that mode. And then you, it's kind of like you can have your cake and eat it too type of situation. But instead, he makes this man an everyman. And yes. I, he wasn't. He just was not. No. Ugh. It's really bad. It's really fucking bad. It's really bad. Like, it's so fucking boring. Like, the conspiracies aren't even interesting. <laughs> like, which I think is the real crime. Well, the actual conspiracies aren't that interesting either. So there you go. Stone bought the rights to Jim Marr's book with his own money nearly immediately upon it being released in the 80s. Okay. Then he made a handshake deal with Warner Brothers that the studio could retain all rights to the film if they fronted $20 million for the cost. He did this because he didn't want the screenplay to go around studios and get leaked. Uh, that's not a bad deal. He was, he was, everybody says this is controversial, and it was like, it was the most explosive movie of 1991. It stirred up the most shit. Like he knew it was going to stir up shit, so like he didn't want other people getting access to it. I think that's fair, and that was honestly really smart. Yeah, movie still sucks, but that was a smart move. <laughs> he then hired a Yale graduate, Jane Rashoni, to head a team of researchers to assemble as much information as possible. While Stone was finishing up Born on the Fourth of July, again reportedly a great movie. Stone read about two dozen books on the assassination, but Rashoni and her team read almost two hundred books. And in total, 24 researchers were involved in the scripting. That's just sad. Well, it's even more sad when I get to the history section here. Like, it's sad. Sklar's role here was actually to write the garrison parts. And Stone worked mostly on all of the stuff surrounding Oswald, Dealey Plaza, and Mr. X. I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like it. X was based on L. Fletcher Prudy, Chief of Special Operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Kennedy years. He was the principal liaison between the Pentagon and CIA, and he serves as a technical advisor on this film. And who boy, wait till we talk about him too. Garrison's speech near the end of the film was cobbled together from several other speeches and some notes from his book. Mm-hmm. It's so on the nose. The film's controversy led to many accusing Stone of making up facts. Again, he puts down these annotated sources, but the problem is his sources are all crap. And finally, just to give you a little flavor of Oliver Stone here, when John F. Kennedy Jr. started his new magazine, George, 
the staff persuaded him to interview Oliver Stone because it was coming out around the movie and hey, this will drum up publicity for your brand new magazine. Mm -hmm. The second he sat down, Stone asked JFK Jr. whether he really believed Oswald acted alone. Jr. excused himself, then came back in and very politely ended the interview. Good for him. JFK Jr. told his aides, quote, he couldn't sit across a table from that man for two hours, unquote, and that Stone made him feel like, quote, Captain Kirk being stalked by the world's looniest Trekkie, unquote. Okay. Fuck Oliver Stone. I mean, yes. <laughs> Holy shit. <sighs> and now, Diana, let me explain to you just how wrong this movie is. Uh-huh. Former Charles Manson prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi wrote a 1,600-page book on the assassination. It's called Reclaiming History. And in that book, he devotes nearly 100 pages to this film alone. Okay. Because of how much damage it did to the credibility. Fair. Per him, the movie, quote, is virtually one continuous lie in which Stone couldn't find any level of deception and invention beyond which he was unwilling to go, unquote. Here is his summation of who he accuses in this movie. At one time or another in the film, Stone has the following people and groups, some of whose interests were the exact opposite of other conspirators' interests, acting or being referred to conspiratorially in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the CIA, and the KGB, FBI, Secret Service, Castro, anti-Castro Cuban exiles, the Dallas Police Department, the mayor of Dallas, LBJ, military defense contractors, oil men, Bankers, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Clay Shaw, David Ferry, Guy Bannister, Organized Crime, the Office of Naval Intelligence, Army Intelligence, and the Right Wing of America. Wow. Yeah! <laughs> and when you lay it all out like that, you're like, he didn't come up with like a single cohesive idea. No. <laughs> There's no one to point the finger to. My favorite is the fact that he... He, in some breaths, says Castro did it and that it's all anti-Castro Cuban exiles. It's like, well, then make up your fucking mind, dude. Ugh. Let's talk about Jim Garrison, all right? <laughs> First of all, and this is just a, a little baseline here. Garrison was a political animal first and foremost. He is a district fucking attorney. Yeah. So he cracked down on sex work in the New Orleans quarter. That's how he really got his stuff. Mm-hmm. After a conflict with local criminal judges over his budget in the 60s, he accused all of the judges of racketeering and conspiring against him. Mm -hmm. The eight judges charged him with misdemeanor criminal defamation, and Garrison was convicted in January 1963. Wow. However, in 1964, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the conviction and struck down the statute as unconstitutional. Okay. This isn't the first time he's pulled this shit. So the other fun part about this is that in 1973, he was tried but found not guilty for accepting bribes to protect illegal pinball machine operations. Because yes, pinball used to be illegal gambling. During that trial, tape recordings from March 1971 revealed that Garrison considered publicly implicating former U.S. Air Force General and Deputy Director of the CIA, Charles Cabell, of conspiracy in the assassination of Kennedy. What? And he did this because Charles Cabell was the brother of Earl Cabell, the mayor of Dallas. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is a man who got deeply convinced of some bullshit. Sure. And then went off the rails. And also got kicked the fuck out of office for being a total political garbage human. 
he's not a good guy. And he's not a believable guy. But now, <laughs> let's step into a couple of these theories. Number one, the idea that John F. Kennedy was planning on withdrawing from Vietnam. It's a central claim in the movie and one of the reasons why everybody was uh, potentially going to take him out, right? Yeah. The organizing principle of any society, Mr. Garrison, is for war. The authority of the state over its people resides in its war powers. And Kennedy wanted to end the Cold War in his second term. He wanted to call off the moon race in favor of cooperation with the Soviets. He signed a treaty with the Soviets to ban nuclear testing. He refused to invade Cuba in 1962, and he set out to withdraw from Vietnam. They specifically mention National Security Memo 263, NSAM 263, which was the authorization of withdrawing a thousand U.S. military personnel from South Vietnam. Now, JFK relies on a couple of historians saying that this was just such a deep indication that he was going to get out, and that clearly points the way, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, to, to why the military-industrial complex would take him out. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem. Kennedy was never clear on his position in Vietnam. Kennedy's whole foreign policy was relatively near-term thought. Kennedy didn't think too much f too far in advance about how that stuff worked. In fact, all of his stuff in Cuba was totally related around the political points he could win with it. Mm -hmm. The other part of this is that all evidence and notes point to the withdrawal of advisors in 1963 to him not liking the South Vietnamese leadership because it was more brutal than the North Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And it was making them look bad. So they were saying, until you get your shit together, we're not giving you anything extra. I think that's fair. There's no evidence to point that, he, that that memo and that moment was a sign that he was ready to get out of Vietnam. Yeah. And that's clearly, that's clearly Stone's biggest thing. Stone made an entire trilogy of movies about the Vietnam War. Yeah. It's his biggest thing. He's so anti-war. And I totally get it. And he made incredible statements with those movies. They're yeah. powerful movies, mm -hmm. but he believes that JFK would have gotten us out. And he believes that so hard that he's willing to come up with all of this shit. And he's just not right. Mm. Like, I hate to tell everybody, but there's no evidence that JFK planned that. Now, let's talk about Mr. X. Number one, Jim Garrison never met Mr. X or Fletcher Prudy, the man upon whom X is based. Okay. That meaning never happened. Instead, Prudy met with Stone as a technical advisor and told him all of this information when they met. Okay. Stone said, I included the scene because Garrison and Prudy had come to the same conclusions. Here's the problem with Prudy. He's a fucking idiot. <laughs> but it's not how you really feel, Jamie. The account that he gave Stone is based on a supposed suppressed Kennedy administration study where power brokers met in a, quote, underground storage and security area called mm -hmm. Iron Mountain. Okay. The meeting's topic was, quote, could America survive if and when a condition of permanent peace should arise, unquote. This memo was a hoax. Ooh. It is based on a 1967 book written by Leonard Lewin, who was a satirist and who several years later revealed it with his co-writers as a hoax. Hmm. Prudy fully believed it. Interesting. Then, to top it off, Prudy, Mr. X reports to having been assigned to escort VIPs to Antarctica to prevent him from being involved in oversight. And he states that the protocol for presidential security would have never allowed the windows to be open or for the limo to slow down in Dallas. Anyway, 
after I came back, I asked myself, why was I, the chief of special ops, selected to travel to the South Pole at that time to do a job that any number of others could have done? And I wondered if it could have been because one of my routine duties, if I had been in Washington, would have been to arrange for additional security in Texas. So I decided to check it out. And sure enough, I found out that someone had told the 112th Military Intelligence Group at 4th Army Headquarters at Fort Sam Houston to stand down that day over the protests of the unit commander. Colonel Wright. I believe it's a mistake. This is significant because it is standard operating procedure, especially in a known hostile city like Dallas, to supplement the Secret Service. I mean, even if we had not allowed the bubble top to be removed from the limousine, we would have placed at least 100 to 200 agents on the sidewalk without question. This is bullshit. Prudy was sent to Antarctica to show VIPs around, but it was because he had applied for retirement. And while his retirement was being processed, he was given all duties dedicated to the Antarctica trip. Hmm. Prudy was also never involved in presidential security during his tenure, and he had never been a liaison for the Secret Service. All of the restrictions that he mentions are things that Prudy told Stone were required in the Secret Service manual. They are not. Hmm. So he's wrong. Now let's get into Willie O'Keefe's eyewitness testimony, our Kevin Bacon character. The movie goes out of its way to be as homophobic as humanly possible and make Sean Ferry to be involved in gay BDSM orgies and O'Keefe being a sex worker. Mm-hmm. The actual individual that this is based on is a gentleman by the name of Perry Russo. Russo was heterosexual and had zero knowledge of Shaw's private life. He had no stories of any parties like that. Now, Clay Shaw was gay, but the only way we know this is from J. Edgar Hoover's FBI files on him. That's not messed up. Yeah. Throughout questioning, Russo said he never actually met Shaw and saw him only from a distance. Garrison then drugged Russo with sodium pentothal, a.k.a. truth serum, and alternately had him hypnotized. And that is when Russo changed his story. Okay. Russo... Even then, when he finally said, yes, I saw Clay Shaw in these meetings with, with David Ferry, had numerous reliability issues. He stated numerous times that Oswald had a full beard when everyone around him knew that Oswald was always clean shaven. Hmm. So in the movie, all we see is Willie O'Keefe's character being assassinated, but he has the truth. The fact is, it wasn't Russo's character in dispute. The facts didn't work. Hmm. Are you seeing why this movie's really, really awful? Yes. Then there's David Ferry, who, God bless Joe Pesci for taking this movie, I guess. Who killed the president? Oh, man, why don't you fucking stop it? Shit, who did... This is too fucking big for you, you know that? This is... Who did the president? Who killed... Get, fuck, man! It's, it's a mystery! It's a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma! The fucking shooters don't even know, don't you get it? Fuck, man! I can't keep talking like this. You're gonna fucking kill me! I'm gonna fucking die! David Ferry never, ever gave a confession to Jim Garrison. Okay. The scene where he goes off and starts spouting all this bullshit, that never happened. Ferry maintained his innocence until he died, and he died of natural causes. The film, of course, suggests a conspiracy, but the coroner ruled the death as natural causes, and guess who never challenged those coroner results? the district attorney of New Orleans, Jim mm -hmm. Garrison. Mm. Ferry's involvement in this story and its manner is a complete and utter libel. The only reason that he didn't get sued over that 
is because Fairy was dead and couldn't sue him. Okay. And then there's the magic bullet. So now a single bullet remains. A single bullet now has to account for the remaining seven wounds in Kennedy and Conley. But rather than admit to a conspiracy or investigate further, the Warren Commission chose to endorse the theory put forth by an ambitious junior counselor, Arlen Specter, one of the grossest lies ever forced on the American people. We've come to know it as the magic bullet theory. The magic bullet enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck, wound number two, where it waits 1.6 seconds, presumably in midair, where it turns right, then left, right, then left, and continues into Conley's body at the rear of his right armpit, wound number three. The bullet then heads downward at an angle of 27 degrees, shattering Conley's fifth rib and exiting from the right side of his chest, wound number four. The bullet then turns right and re-enters Conley's body at his right wrist, wound number five. Shattering the radius bone, the bullet then exits Conley's wrist, wound number six, makes a dramatic U-turn and buries itself into Conley's left thigh, wound number seven, from which it later falls out and is found in almost pristine condition on a stretch in a court or Parkland Hospital. That's some bullet. Oh, the magic bullet. Everybody's talked about this. How could a pristine bullet loop around five times and hit people in all these spots? Mm-hmm. Number one, the trajectory that is displayed in the movie is based on completely false evidence and flawed reconstructions. Mm-hmm. As one example... Garrison states that the bullet had to change direction to move upwards through Kennedy's neck at some point. That comes from an analysis of the bullet hole in the back of Kennedy's jacket. However, even in videos and photographs, three seconds before the shot, it is clearly seen that JFK's jacket was hunched up above his shoulders. Hmm. If that's true, and it was, the bullet would have gone through that hole downward, down through his neck, and continued its downward trajectory. Mm-hmm. Then in the 2000s, and there's a great like ABC 2020 type documentary that was done that I've seen before. They did computer modeling. That computer modeling showed and accounted for the fact that the presidential limo had a step in the back seat with the rear seat three inches higher than Garrison understood. Okay. That meant that if you tracked that higher seat, the trajectory of the bullet went straight through JFK, through his neck, and down through Governor Connolly. And as for back into the left, neurologists during the Warren Commission testified that when the head and brain are hit by a bullet, nerves within the head can explode and cause the head to change direction. CBS also then examined the Zapruder film in the 70s, and in examining the frames found that Kennedy's head actually moved slightly forward after being shot, not back. It only moved back within a couple of frames later, which couldn't be explained by another bullet. It could only be explained by a nerve explosion. Oh, okay. It's all bullshit. Every single bit of it. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. And the interesting thing about the history here is that the motives are legitimate. Mm Mm-hmm. Every single one of these people had a motive to kill Kennedy. Yeah. Castro, 
anti-Castro exiles, and the mafia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the inner powers of government. All of those groups had legitimate motives to kill Kennedy. But there is not a single shred of evidence that actually goes towards them. Mm-hmm. Ever. And we've been doing this for decades. And we'll continue to do this for decades. Partially because of this movie. But it's all based on crap. It's based on crap research and not reading things right. What? I gotta read. At a certain point, when the massive evidence continues to not give you anything, you have to finally start to admit that, okay, it's probably how it happened. Mm-hmm. And it's wild and it's ridiculous, but it's the only explanation we have that makes any shred of sense when you look at the actual evidence involved. Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay. One other fun historical mistake here is that the film alludes to the Umbrella Man theory, a gentleman opening up an umbrella as a potential signal to other shooters. The film doesn't really, I mean, it just kind of shows him and then never really mentions it again. Yeah. However, the Umbrella Man, quote unquote, testified before a second House Select Committee that was convened in the late 1970s. And documentary filmmaker Errol Morris, who is an actual truth seeker, we've talked about him before. He created a short film with the New York Times called The Umbrella Man, and as they went through the records, it revealed that he was a protester against Joe Kennedy, the Kennedy father, and his foreign policies, and it was a reference to Neville Chamberlain's umbrella, which Neville Chamberlain inciting the Nazis. All this on record, all this testified before Congress. Hmm. So even a little detail like that is conflated so far out of proportion in this movie. (sighs) let's talk about our director why well by god it's oliver stone again look at that before this he directed seizure the hand salvador platoon wall street talk radio born on the fourth of july and the doors after this heaven and earth natural born killers nixon u-turn any given sunday alexander world trade center w wall street money never sleeps savages and snowden What do we think of the directing of this movie? It's so bad. Mm. No, thank you. I will give him credit here. If the flashback scenes weren't happening so fucking often, mm-hmm. the chaotic editing of them is magnificent. Okay. And him conceiving of like, we're going we're gonna to blast you with all of the angles at once. Yeah. It works. It's a really great convention. It works really well. Mm-hmm. Him, you know, using the ideas of going back in time, showing Oswald in black and white because it's a memory and all this fuzziness. And I mean, he his 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 directing's not bad. Well, it's nothing good. I don't know. <laughs> it's not good. He doesn't tell his story well. That's ultimately why it's bad. Yeah, it just it it doesn't pass the smell test. And nope. like, and and it's funny because I'm sure there are people who are like, yeah, well, you know. You're you're just you're just not thinking about this critically in in the way he's doing it. And part of this, I have to admit, is I've grown up in Dallas all my life. I haven't been to the museum, but I know all about this story. Mm-hmm. And we talk about it every year. Yep. And like you hear more and more stuff about it, and you just go, "This is all bullshit." And now we're having people talking about you know JFK Jr. is going to come back, and he's you know not really dead, and that's part of the Q conspiracy. And I go. Look at what you fucking did, dude. You didn't make things better. You didn't shine a light on truth. You made things worse. And, you know, I could say some of it's interesting to look at, but at the end of the day, all it does is continue to obscure 
the truth he thinks he's getting to. Mm-hmm. <sighs> there are over 2,800 shots in this film. Okay. He shot 120 hours of footage for this movie. His editors had to somehow make that into a three-hour film. An admirable effort. I mean, yeah. But editing it was a whole other adventure. When editing the scene where Oswald goes from his room to the theater, Stone told editor Joe Hushing to make it chaotic. So he did. He tried to make it a little weird and cut off, and Stone said, no, it needs to be more chaotic. Well. The film stock was so different, like he was filming on so many different styles of film, that they transferred everything to videotape to edit. Makes sense? Yeah. And so (laughs) the other editor who was like, well, I'm using video. I have Mm -hmm. buttons, so I don't I don't have to like actually cut the film strip. Yeah. So he just started hitting buttons at random. I mean, I can get on board with that. Abandoning all logic. Stone saw it and claimed it was perfect. I'm so mad at him. It's so, it's just so much effort for no return. No return on the experience. It is the most community theater director bullshit. That's so rude to community theater director. (laughs) This man. They're assholes, but still. We've talked about people being too deep in their own projects. Even in this series, we talked about the Coens in a movie that we didn't hate, but we were like, you're too close to this. This man is too deep into his own shit mm-hmm. in the biggest way ever. Oh, I agree. This, this, that's what this is. Like, he has gone way too far, way too far into his own id with this movie. Uh, and Stone stated that filming Kennedy's murder was, quote, probably the hardest two weeks of his life, but he maintained it was incredibly powerful for him. Yay. He you. calls this movie his godfather. <laughs> that's just bad. Okay, can we talk about... Some things I don't have as horrible things to say about. No. Let's talk about our cast. Okay. There, all right. We start Kevin Costner as Jim Garrison. Before this, he was in Malibu Hot Summer, Night Shift, Francis, Testament, Fandango, Silverado, American Flyers, Amazing Stories, The Untouchables, No Way Out, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, Dances with Wolves, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. After this, he was in The Bodyguard, Wyatt Earp, Waterworld, Tin Cup, The Postman, Message in a Bottle, For Love of the Game, Play It to the Bone, 13 Days, 3,000 Miles to Graceland, Open Range, The Upside of Anger, Rumor Has It, The Guardian, Mr. Brooks, Swing Vote, The Company Men, Man of Steel, Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, Draft Day, McFarland USA, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, Hidden Figures, Molly's Game, Let Him Go, and Yellowstone on TV. What do we think of Kevin Costner in this movie? I mean, he's doing what the script tells him to do, but that's just not a lot. Well, first of all, do you ever see a picture of Jim Garrison? Mm-hmm. He's like a bug-eyed weirdo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, maybe not like that hard on the eyes, but like he's not Kevin fucking Costner. Well, you know, we only want to watch movies with attractive people, so. In Stone's vision of this character, Costner's a great pick. Yeah. Because he is an everyman. And there are some flashes from kevin where it's like oh this is kind of an interesting touch this is not something i get from you as often Mm -hmm. especially in the like he's going way too deep and he's getting the stuff but then because he's playing it that way it just makes me even angrier at the story like all the shit with his wife where i'm like fuck this guy yeah he just comes off as an asshole and like not in a interesting way 
And the funniest part about all of it is that Stone thinks he's a hero for acting like that. Oh, many people do. Like, <laughs> many, many people think that that's how you're supposed to be. You you have to be devoted to the truth regardless of the cost. Pretty much. And it was like, are you fucking kidding me with this guy? By the way, I should note, Jim Garrison was succeeded by none other than Harry Connick Sr. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Who, uh, I will also say, served as the DA from 1973 to 2003. Very popular dude. Yeah. I just, Kevin Costner's fine. He's great at giving big speeches. And him getting emotional at the end of his, of his jury speech, while it's total bullshit, is really affecting. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, <laughs> I can't care. No, it's impossible to care. <sighs> well, Stone cast him on the strength of his performance in The Untouchables. He wanted Kevin Costner to bring the same determination to this role as he did as Elliot Ness going after Al Capone. Mm-hmm. Good to get this guy no matter what the cost. Check it. Makes some sense. Costner didn't want to accept the role. Mm-hmm. He had done Prince of Thieves, and he was like, I want a year off. Fair. I get that. He had to do a lot in that movie. But Stone sent Kevin Costner's wife a copy of the script Ooh. instead of him because mm-hmm. he has the audacity. Yeah, of course he does. But Costner's wife was like, you have to take this role. Mm. <laughs> and I mean, she's not wrong. It, you know, he was already a movie star, but this just like cemented him as an icon. Sure. <laughs> it's made him even bigger deal and he would have been a fool to pass it up. Costner researched Garrison extensively. He met with Garrison and both his friends and enemies to perform the role. Mm-hmm. According to Stone, both Costner and Donald Sutherland memorized their speeches and that Costner intended to do his speech in one take. He reportedly rehearsed the trial summation while in his swimming pool with his mother correcting him from the script. Which, you know what? I love that Kevin Costner does the same type of memorization practice that I did when I was doing theater. Yeah. I was like, I like that, Kevin. He really does seem like just one of the most down-to-earth guys. Don't necessarily love everything he likes to say or believe, but he really does just seem like a dude. Yeah. And despite the speech not re- being written for him to be emotional, he was supposed to be, you know, so tough and strong, the weight of the words caught him off guard and he really got choked up in that moment. That's cool. And fortunately, they got it in that one take. So he does an admirable job. It's just such a bad movie that I can't love his performance in it. Who could have been better? Mel Gibson. Yeah, that tracks. Harrison Ford. Yeah. Grouchy they were man. both original choices for Elliot Ness in The Untouchables as well. Cool. How about Don Johnson? Yeah, I see it. Stone and the producers felt his public image, because of the Miami Vice stuff, would make him a hard sell as Garrison. James Woods. Yeah. Woods and Stone had major differences. Woods wanted it to be a straight biography of Garrison, while Stone, obviously, wanted to tell his whole JFK conspiracy theory. Yeah. Jeff Bridges. Mm-hmm. At the time, not considered a major box office draw. I get that. Nick Nolte. Nah, I mean, this is so similar to him playing uh, the dude in Cape Fear. He was considered too old, which I'm like, no, he wouldn't have been. He'd have been great. Yeah, he would have been fine. And now, let me name every other major actor of the 1990s. Oh, okay. Lightning Round. Alec Baldwin. Yes. Tom Berenger. Maybe. Willem Dafoe. No. Robert De Niro. Maybe. Michael Douglas. No. Gene Hackman. Yes. Michael Keaton. Yes. 
John Malkovich. Mm, no. John Malkovich looks like Jim Garrison. He does, but he would have made a better um, Oswald. Jack Nicholson. Yes. Dennis Quaid. Yes. Oh, God, yes. I mean, <laughs> uh, you're just like, you're just listing lesser, half of these guys are lesser Costners. I don't know about that. Robert De Niro is not a lesser No, I said, I said some of them are just okay. lesser. Like Dennis Quaid, Don Johnson, those are cheaper Costners. Robert Redford. Yes, he would have done well. No, he would have been a great Mr. X, though. Oh, okay. I would have bought that. And Robin Williams. No! <laughs> Good God. Uh, all right, let's move on to Gary Oldman as Lee Harvey Oswald. He was so attractive when he was younger. Not that he's an unattractive guy now, but it's just like, yeah. Like, he's he's aged a lot. <laughs> He has very much gotten into the, like, you are a definitely older man. But man, back in the 90s, whoo, mm-hmm. he's very good. I mean, if you've seen actual stuff of Oswald, he really does look so much like Oswald and sounds like him. And it's one of those things with Gary Oldman. Like, Gary Oldman's the best at melting into a role. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just so good at it. And you can shot for shot compare him to actual stuff from Oswald. And it's like, wow. He does a really good job. Like, he really Mm -hmm. does. He's one of the actual highlights of the movie, to be honest. (laughs) You kind of see him and you're like, oh, good, some good acting. (laughs) Or some good stuff. I mean, it's hard to say that because Costner has so much he has to deliver in the way of exposition. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, he had so many words he had to say. And Kevin Costner's talent isn't saying words. His talent's looking steely-eyed off into the distance, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, good for Gary Oldman. Like, this is this is good stuff. Who could have been better? Frank Whaley was up for the role. As consolation for being replaced, he plays the Oswald imposter in the movie. Oh, okay. Then Charlie Sheen. Maybe. Alec Baldwin. No. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. No. D.B. Sweeney. Yes. <laughs> and yes, I know who D.B. Sweeney is. I know people are like, who the fuck is that? We've talked about him on the show. Mm-hmm. All right. Then we get to Joe fucking Pesci as David Ferry. Mm. Bless his heart. Mm-hmm. They brought this man in so he could curse and be fucking frantic. Yeah. <laughs> the wig just makes it so unwatchable mm-hmm. <laughs> the wig and the eyebrows and it's revealed that it's fake which is I, I like when i saw that they like they find him dead and he's bald and i was like oh thank fucking christ they weren't trying to pass that off as an actual wig yeah otherwise all of you are fired <laughs> every single one of you fired retroactively i mean I, I will say this you get to hear joe pesci do an interesting new orleans accent it, it, interesting is definitely the word for it. It's not the worst. Mm-hmm. He pulls it off pretty well. Yeah. But I, why is he here? Like, there wasn't anybody else you could get for this. I, oof, oof. Uh, who could have been better? James Woods. Yeah. He turned it down because he wanted Garrison, but uh, he would have been a better David Ferry. That manic energy. Then Willem Dafoe. Well, yeah. Jeff Goldblum. No. Martin Landau. No. John Malkovich. Yes. Gary Oldman. Yes. And finally, the pride of San Saba, Tommy Lee Jones playing Clay Shaw, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Clay Bertrand. I mean, he's great. 
you know what? I will actually say this. He's great because if you know the actual history uh-huh. and you're not buying into the script, his performance reads the same as it would if he wasn't being implied to be hiding that he's guilty. Mm-hmm. He does a great job of keeping a straight poker face mm-hmm. to where he's a believable character, whether this is farcical nonsense or if you actually buy into the conspiracy theory. Yeah. And with that, I have to give him credit. Okay. No matter what, he bought into the role with how Oliver wanted it done. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, it's, you know, it's passed off as he's this sort of Bond villain and also gay, horrible mess, which is just like, fuck you, Oliver Stone, for being such a homophobe with this shit. But mm-hmm. he does a great job. Uh, in, in that respect but yeah i just uh, <laughs> okay let's talk about arpons because holy shit this cast mm-hmm. we have j.o sanders as lou ivon lou the right hand man who's gonna take down all the bad guys he was general strong and glory ed asner as guy bannister it's carl from up it's santa from elf <laughs> jack lemon as jack martin who could have been better for this role harry dean stanton Ooh, maybe. Vincent D'Onofrio as Bill Newman just shows up in a random interview segment. I mean, he shows up randomly in everything, so cool. Sissy Spacek as Liz Garrison. She is horrible in this movie. Bless her heart. Well, I mean, she's doing what she's told to do, but god damn. It's definitely the writing, but like her and Kevin Costner are so mismatched. Oh my god. There is nothing about them that's like, oh yeah, they're like, they love each other. Nope. Mm-mm. Here's a who could have been better. Sybil Shepard. Oh, a thousand times better. <laughs> love me some Sybil. As Jack Ruby, the eldest Murray, Brian Doyle Murray. I love Brian Doyle Murray. He kind of looks like Jack Ruby. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's pretty good. But who could have been better? Danny Aiello. I don't know. Wayne Knight as Numa Bertel. That's right. Newman. Newman. <laughs> plays Numa in JFK, which makes the JFK bit that much funnier from Seinfeld. Oh, yes, it does. That he's one of the guys on the team in JFK. Oh, it's amazing. According to your story, Hernandez passes you and starts walking up the ramp. Mm-hmm. Then you say you were struck on the right temple. The spit then proceeds to ricochet off the temple, striking Newman between the third and the fourth rib. The spit then came off the rib, made a right turn, hitting Newman in the right wrist, causing him to drop his baseball cap. The spit then splashed off the wrist, pauses in midair, mind you, makes a left turn, and lands on Newman's left thigh. That is one magic loogie. Michael Rooker as Bill Broussard, the only character I actually liked. Michael Rooker looks like such a baby. It's adorable. He was so young. I know. It's terrifying. It's like, it's Merle. Well, and it's crazy because his first big break was Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. That was in the mid to late 80s. Mm-hmm. So he's like just getting started here. Lori Metcalf as Susie Cox. Really interesting to watch her in this, though, because they've totally like made her up as district attorney person. 
like district attorney, like beautiful Southern woman. Late woman. She looks so pretty. Yeah. And Lori Metcalf is a beautiful woman, but de- you got to remember during this time, she was on Roseanne and they perfectly made her look like not, I don't want to say bad, but just so average. Working class. Yes. Working class, average woman who spends no time on her appearance. So like to see her in this, it's just like, oh, she's so pretty. <laughs> it is it is just a weird shock of like, whoa, you look totally different. Yeah. Walter Matthau as Senator Long, making this the only movie that Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon starred in together and never appeared on screen together. <laughs> Playing Jasper Garrison, one of the sons, Sean Stone, son of mm-hmm. Oliver. John Candy as Dean Andrews. Mm-hmm. His sweaty face while talking to Garrison and on screen was real. He was terrified of working with all of these huge, amazing actors. Mm-hmm. So he sweat profusely while on screen. That's funny. Uh, but he was chosen because he particularly resembled Andrews. He's great as a Southern man. As a Southern beatnik man? Yes. His dialogue is terrible. Who could have been better? No one. Danny DeVito. Maybe. John Goodman. Let me guess. <laughs> Always John Goodman. We have Kevin Bacon as Willie O'Keefe. Okay. He's been on the show a few times. Despite Mm -hmm. only four days of filming, he credits this movie with revitalizing his career, a, quote, turning point. Okay. Which, to be fair, right after this, he does A Few Good Men, and, like, he starts rolling into the, like, big movie star role instead of rom-com dude. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, uh, can't blame him for that. Sally Vale Nyston as Mary Mormon. Wait, what? Yes, Sally Vale is in this movie as one of the... Mostly because Mary Mormon is one of the people who has consistently testified that she saw somebody mm-hmm. else shooting. So I believe you would see her in the like cross section while he's doing the breakdown of the back and to the left shit. That's so weird because I remember her talking about this. Sally Vale was one of our teachers in college. Yes. Mm-hmm. Lovely lady, phenomenal actress. Dallas Stalwart yeah, in the theater she's, community. She's amazing. Jim Garrison as Earl Warren. This is the angriest I've ever been at a stunt cast. Mm-hmm. The man who lied and conspiracy theoried his way into this bullshit trial played the former chief justice of the United States Supreme Court that led the effort to try to know what happened in the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. I hate you, Oliver Stone. Yeah. Donald Sutherland as. X. No. I mean, he's fine. Uh, who could have been better? Marlon Brando. Okay. I wouldn't have hated Brando in that role. It would have been interesting. Uh, okay. Sutherland's better, though. He's got that really good way of whispering into a mm-hmm. conspiracy. Yes. As General Y, Dale Dye, the most prominent military advisor in movie history, he frequently embeds with film crews and usually gets a role as, you know, one of the soldiers in the group in movies. Mm-hmm. he's one of the most famous like i'm gonna train you up to be actual soldiers guys playing one of the tv newsmen bob gunton who is the bad general in glory and the warden from shawshank redemption okay Anne rice's labrador as the garrison family dog not credited but it, it it's Anne rice's dog <laughs> that's so weird i believe she's based out of new orleans so that makes sense okay perry r russo as a man who yells about how they should give the shooter a medal he, of course, 
was one of the witnesses, the mm-hmm. actual basis for Willie O'Keefe, okay. and as our narrator, Martin Sheen. Yeah, like that voice came on. I was like, that's Martin Sheen. Like, to, I know to that just voice tie, anywhere. To tie it all back into the boomer trauma porn of it all. Yeah. All right. Nominations. Oh, God. This was nominated for eight Academy Awards. Okay. Best Sound. All right. Best Film Editing. Okay. Best Cinematography. Meh. No. No. Best Original Score. Yeah. It's John Williams. Williams. Yeah, you can't can't deny that, man. Best Adapted Screenplay. Fuck off. (laughs) Fuckity off. Congratulations, you nominated liars. Best Supporting Actor for Tommy Lee Jones. Okay. That feels like filler. It's not the worst, though. If they'd have nominated Pesci, I'd have been pissed. <laughs> mm. Best Director. Fuck's sake, no. And Best Picture. No. <sighs> this is one of those cases where I'm like, yeah, but I kind of get why. <laughs> no, I get it too, but it's also awful. Let's go to trivia. Trivia. Oswald's murder was filmed in the basement garage of Dallas City Hall, where the actual shooting took place. His arrest scene was also filmed in the actual Texas theater, and the money from the producers to restore the Texas theater was what allowed it to stay in business, which it is to this day. That's pretty cool. They do lots of movie screenings over there now. They kind of revitalized it. Yeah. The Angola prison sequence was filmed on location with actual guards and inmates. Oh, goody. Hmm. Reportedly, Stone loved it so much that he wanted to shoot an entire film on location at, at, at the racist Louisiana prison. Cool. The one where they do forced labor cool. instead of, you know, getting actual recreation time. Yeah. I hate you, Oliver Stone. Yeah, you're a jackass. Making Dealey Plaza look the same as it did in 1963 cost almost $4 million. Mm-hmm. They had to pay city council to reroute traffic and close the streets for almost three weeks in 1991. Stone had only 10 days to shoot, so the director of photography, Robert Richardson, used two 35mm cameras, five 16mm cameras, and over 14 different film stocks to allow them to get all the different shots. That's pretty cool. I That is where the cinematography, I give them so much credit. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm not saying I think it's like the best ever. But especially that sequence was so well done in how they shot it in so many different ways. Yeah. Because you've got people with like handheld Super 8s, you've got 16 millimeters, you've got outstanding footage, and then you're mixing all of that with the Zapruder footage. Like, it's really well crafted for Mm -hmm. that portion. (laughs) Yeah. Filming in the book depository was a huge sticking point, however. The depository, also we would know it as the Sixth Floor Museum, demanded $50,000 to put someone in the window where Oswald stood. Yeah, okay. Because they, again, Dallas for the longest time, it, it's gotten over it, but for a long time, Dallas was incredibly sensitive about the assassination. Yeah, it was like this whole, like, this was just a really dark day in our city's history, mm-hmm. which is fair. What the Sixth Floor Museum has done a really great job of is, if you go to Dealey Plaza, there are crackpot weirdos giving out conspiracy theory shit. Mm-hmm. which has only gotten worse in recent years. Yeah. The Sixth Floor Museum, though, has dedicated itself to trying to tell the actual story of what happened that day mm-hmm. and how it impacted people sure. and showing off certain exhibits of the history of the Kennedys. Yeah. And it's really done a great job of like, 
we're going to actually like, you know, try to do some real justice and memory to this moment. <laughs> sure. The thing that is always bizarre to tell people is that there is an actual X mm-hmm. in the middle of the street, which is where the bullet hit him, yep. which is so bizarre. And I think the thing that I find bizarre and hilarious sometimes is that there is some city worker who has it on their worksheet for a day go repaint the X in the middle of the street because yeah. it has to be repainted periodically. That is so weird. Yeah, it's it is weird. so weird. And also school children go to the sixth floor museum as like, it's, it's a very, like I went, I think I was in eighth grade maybe, mm. but yeah, it's a, it's a field trip. It is. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's one of those things that the more everybody tried to escape it, the more people would like, get mad at dallas and eventually we're like you know what we kind of just have to deal with it it is what it is we need to talk about it (laughs) yeah the depository only allowed filming at certain times of day and only five people were allowed on the sixth floor at a given time it took five months of negotiating with the owners of the depository to transform the interiors to look like they did in 1963 The Oval Office was meticulously reconstructed on archival footage of the White House during Kennedy's term. The Oval Office set cost about $70,000, only appearing in black and white for eight seconds of film. Spare no fucking expense, I guess, but like, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. I mean, we really can't say much. I mean, look at Jim Cameron. Yeah, but at least Jim Cameron's movies have cool shit to watch. Yeah, it's not. I mean, they're still three hours, but they're not as boring. And well, okay. Yes, but you get cool action sequences instead of eight seconds of a $70,000 Oval Office set. Yeah. What are you doing, Oliver? Nothing. In preparation to play Marina Oswald, actress Beata Posniak studied all 26 volumes of the Warren Commission report, read every Time and Newsweek article about Marina, and lived with Marina for a few weeks, months, it doesn't say, to absorb all of her mannerisms. Hmm. She's in the movie for two minutes. I mean, good for her for putting in the work. Everyone took this so fucking seriously. Well, yeah. Clayshaw names his butler Smedley. This is a play on Smedley Butler, a decorated Marine veteran, Uh, with a long career as a general, who eventually came around and spoke out against military abuse and colonialism, and revealed the business plot, a U.S. fascist conspiracy to overthrow FDR. Hmm. That's a whole fun story. At one point, Jim Garrison tells the jury that 51 witnesses thought they heard shots from the grassy knoll. In 1965, a leading article in the conspiracy theory was published titled, 51 Witnesses, the Grassy Knoll. There weren't that many witnesses, y'all. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. During the flashback, Clay Chase chastises David Ferry for one harebrained scheme or another. Ferry was known for pulling off stupid things, once trying to turn a water tank into a submarine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also, at one point, mention making Castro's beard fall out to embarrass him. This was an actual failed CIA plot. They thought, well, if we can get rid of his beard, it will show him to not be masculine. And this wasn't the worst take in the world because uh the cuban the cuban revolutionaries their beards became a huge signifier for them mm-hmm. but still it that that that's a real thing that we thought about doing to try to oust castro we're smart country we're really smart country y'all we're baby country <laughs> we're babies 
Oh my god. Big, giant babies. I mean, that's definitely many of our politicians, regardless of what side you're on. I'm just big babies. Dr. Marion Jenkins, the anesthesiologist based out of Dallas and at Parkland Hospital, plays himself in this film. When they are getting ready for the autopsy, he was the old man in that scene. Oh, okay. He was genuinely surprised at the detail and research. While the film was in black and white, the tiles for Trauma Room 1 that they film in that sequence were the exact shade of green he remembered from being in Trauma Room 1 that day. That's crazy. But also (laughs) really cool. Big swings, I guess, you know? Just wish it was a big swing in a good direction. Sure. Due to the film's gigantic cast, the film has become a key hub in Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. In fact, some versions of the game prohibit the use of JFK in order to make it slightly more difficult. Fair. And finally, in Bull Durham, in the middle of his I Believe speech, Crash Davis states, quote, I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. <laughs> that leads us to ratings. Oh, God. Hell yeah. Oh, Yeah. I'm ending on Kevin Costner having said what he really believes. That's cool. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this movie, Zapruder Films? Uh, how many backs into the left? Zapruder Films. That's, that's the same thing. Fine. I don't know. Oh, man. This is hard. Mm-hmm. It's not hard because I know it's bad, but it's hard to know how bad to make it. Fair. One star. One star. Man, that almost feels generous. Maybe. There's, there's, but there's enough moments of competence. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, he told a story. It's a bullshit, horrible, no good story that does nothing and is not interesting in any way. But he did do it. Mm-hmm. And people did perform in it. And it is a movie that you can watch. You know what? Half. I'll even go down to half because th- the facts of the case. And the way that he just lies and lies and lies throughout this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I I don't exaggerate when I'm like, I feel like this movie is actually brain poison. And it really sent people down a rabbit hole. It sent our culture down a rabbit hole. Because it's completely wrong. And yet it was so engaging for the audience at the time who mm-hmm. was hungry for some type of narrative like this. Yeah. That it really poisoned the actual history here. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm even going that deep on it. Half a star for just the general competence of having made something that can be watched. I guess I'll go with that. I the movie's just bad. It's just bad. There's really I guess there's some there's some performances that are good. <laughs> they did what they did what they were paid to do. Like they don't embarrass themselves as actors. So like yay you. And the historical accuracy of the set recreations and whatnot. Cool. Good on you. Like, do a good job even if you're in a bad movie. So, cool. This movie just sucks. Like, there's nothing else redeeming about this. So, I think half is being really generous. And I'm sure there are people who love this movie. It's like, oh, this movie's fun. It's cool. And I'm just like. You're wrong. Please, please go read the real truth of this stuff. Just go go watch a good movie. This is yeah. Well, let's see if our next movie is a good movie, huh? Okay. We're going to watch a movie directed and starring Barbara. Barbara Streisand. Because it's not an Oscar series if we don't talk about Barbara. But uh, we are going down 
Well, a movie I, I've, I've heard the name. I know nothing about it. The Prince of Tides. Um, okay. Apparently feelings. We will have feelings about this movie. Okay. Because apparently it makes you cry. It's one of those. All right. Are you ready to cry? Sure. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.